Well, let me invite you to take out your Bibles and turn them open to Mark chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, know there's one provided in the pew in front of you to use. If you do not own a Bible, know there's a stack of them on the table in the foyer. We'd love to gift you with your own copy of the Scriptures. Find your way to Mark chapter 3. Tonight we're stepping into a passage of Scripture in which there's a single verse that has struck fear in the hearts of many people uh, at, for many different reasons at many different times. I remember when I was a kid, I was exposed to the gospel early and often, and, and I remember as a kid just thinking through the things I was hearing, and I caught wind of this verse one day, and it just it disturbed me greatly. And I would lie in bed, just tossing and turning, wondering, well, have I committed the, the unforgivable sin? Have I blasphemed the Holy Spirit? Does that mean, you know, I did disobey mom the other day, right? I, I did talk back to her. I got sharp with her. And so I remember as a kid just tossing and turning and wrestling through, wondering, or not, wondering whether or not I had uh, done what Jesus says, <laughs> do not do, in verse 29. And over the years, as I've talked to others and I've uh, provided counseling to disciples at different points for different reasons. I've come across many disciples who have struggled with the dynamic of verse 29, many of whom who have struggled upon learning that Jesus said that there is an offense that is beyond forgiveness, what verse 29 actually describes as an eternal sin. And I know that saying that, and as you heard the words read a few moments ago, that may leave many of us just scratching our head wondering what in the world is going on because we know who we are within the Hallows Church community. We champion the forgiveness that is available to us in the gospel. We, 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 we shout loudly and often God's ready and willing to forgive sinners. We, we hold up the sufficiency of Jesus' death on the cross for our salvation to reconcile us with our creator that we might relate to him as father and step into his family and his kingdom. We are very passionate about that reality here within the Hallows Church. And so it, that verse may cause us to scratch our heads and, and we're wondering what in the world is going on. Is there really a sin that the Savior will not forgive? Is there really a sin that the Savior will not forgive? And, and just raising that question might check some of you in the gut. Your instinct may be, well, of course not, right? That's what my instinct, that's where I want to go. But if there is, if Jesus is talking about something that is unforgivable in this passage, it would do us well to figure out what that is. We would do well to think deeply tonight about what Jesus is targeting in this moment. Now, over the years and throughout the history of the church, many people in many different ways have, in an, have taken the effort to identify what the unforgivable sin is. But what has happened in many instances is that rather than studying Jesus' words in, its, in context, people have had a tendency to project upon Jesus' words sins and offenses that they themselves perceive to be the most egregious. For example, some have said, well, murder is obviously the unforgivable sin. Murder is a terrible sin. Surely that is something that would push someone beyond the bounds of forgiveness. This was the whole idea behind the Harry Potter series, if you remember, if you've read through those books. The idea of murder in that book, it was the irredeemable sin. It was the, it was the sin that could literally tear your soul apart. It was murder that caused Voldemort to sorry, the he who must not be named, <laughs> to just descend into irredeemable darkness. It was murder that was championed in that book as kind of this, this unforgivable sin. 
Well, we know that can't be the case because we see murderers forgiven all the time in Scripture. King David was a murderer. Paul was a murderer. Both of them experienced the forgiveness found ultimately in the gospel. But then there are others who said, well, it's not murder, it must be adultery. And usually that projection comes from someone who's been wounded by an unfaithful spouse. And because that wound is so deep, they draw the conclusion, well, I could never forgive them for treating me that way. And then they project that upon God, thinking he must not forgive them either. He's on my side in this equation. And so some have said that adultery then would become an unforgivable sin. But of course, we see adulterers forgiven all the time in Scripture. Again, King David, he he had all kinds of issues. He was a murderer and an adulterer, right? He stole a dude's wife and had him killed so that he could have her. But yet David experienced the scandalous grace and the merciful forgiveness of God you can read about in Psalm 51 and in other places. But then some say, okay, well, if it's not murder or adultery, maybe it's suicide. You know, many have projected that's the most common uh, conclusion of the unforgivable sin. It is when a person willingly takes one's own life. But you and I know that suicide is rarely a simple, willful act. You know that those who attempt suicide, many of them do so because they've been so enshrouded in the darkness of depression and despair that they get to a point where they can't see any other options. There's no other way out. And so it's not a willful act. It's a woeful act of desperation, trying to solve some problem that seems insurmountable. So I don't think we're being fair if we say suicide is the unforgivable sin. In fact, I think if we champion suicide as that, we're just heaping sorrow upon sorrow for those who have either had a loved one go that route or maybe those who've attempted it and now are having to live with the burden of guilt and fear and shame of having even tried it. But then there are other examples, a whole catalog of of solutions or identifications of the unforgivable sin. Others have said, well, it's taking the Lord's name in vain. That's what's beyond repair. Others have said, well, it's divorce. Some have said, well, it's, it's uh, sexual issues. Others have said, well, it's abuse. There's been many, uh, many options presented as the unforgivable sin. And as serious as those, those specific sins are, none of them are targeted by this text. None of them are specifically targeted by this text, and none of them are patently unforgivable. None of them are patently unforgivable. We know this because we know the gospel. We know this because of how the gospel begins in Mark chapter 1, verse 14, when Jesus steps onto the scene, and he begins proclaiming the gospel of God. And the word gospel means good news. And what's included in the good news of the gospel is the forgiveness of sins. This is how... This gospel begins, and we want to champion that. The guy by the name of Sam Storms, thinking upon this passage and the ways that verse 29, when it's isolated from its context, has disturbed many people. This is what he had to say about it. He said, you know, many Christians live in constant and paralyzing fear that they have committed the unpardonable sin. They are burdened and broken and grieved and terrified that some sinful habit they cannot break or some recurring transgression they cannot avoid will forever exclude them from the presence of God. Their confidence is shattered and their assurance of salvation is all but lost. And as I stand before you this evening as a pastor, as a preacher and a teacher of the scriptures, I want to confess to you that 
that guys like me are part of the problem. The reason why I think so many souls are disturbed by verse 29, the reason why so many souls are bothered because they don't quite understand what is being said in verse 29 is that guys like me have done their souls a disservice by isolating verses from their context and projecting upon those verses our own biases, our own prejudices, our own fears, our own insecurities, our own sources of anxieties. And when guys like me have done that, we have compounded the problem. Compounding upon people's sense of guilt, fear, and shame by not handling the scriptures very well. I believe this is why God later in the New Testament would speak harshly to those who would handle the scriptures. Anyone who would teach and preach the Bible, God has some harsh things or harsh warnings to say to those who do so. James chapter 3, verse 1, for example, he would say this, not many of you actually discouraging people from doing this type of thing. He says, not many of you should become teachers. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, a very similar thing. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. This is why one of our core values within the Hallows Church is called biblical fidelity. We want to be as faithful as possible to God's word written. This is why we study the Bible the way we do. This is why we try to preach the Bible the way that we do. This is why we try to teach the scriptures in the way that we do because we do souls a disservice when we don't do so well. So practically speaking, this means that we are a church that's committed to what's called, if you're into these types of words, what's called expository preaching. And expository preaching simply means that when we come to the Bible, we want to do whatever it takes to expose God's voice in the Bible. So that means ordinarily we walk through books systematically. That way we're forced to deal with everything in the gospel. We're forced to deal with issues we might not naturally want to deal with. It keeps us accountable in that regard. This is why when we take a passage of scripture, we want to deal with the passage in context. We want to pay attention to what's called syntax or sentence structure. We want to be sensitive to the literary genres of the Bible, understanding that the Psalms read differently than the epistles. We want to pay attention to canon placement or where a particular book is located in the Bible. We take all of that into consideration when we're reading, studying, preaching, and teaching the scriptures. It also means that we focus on historical issues and cultural issues so that we can come to the best understanding by God's grace that we can get to. Believing the Bible can be understood, we do our best to understand it. And everything, no matter what we're doing, we know and we are convinced that you can't understand any passage of Scripture unless you unlock it with the key of the gospel. So that's how we approach the Bible. We, we want to study the scriptures well, and we want to rely upon the Holy Spirit so that we're not projecting upon the Bible our own voices, but instead we're trying to disclose the echo of God's voice through what we read, what we hear, what we teach, and what we preach. 
And that's a very helpful thing when you step into this type of passage. Because I'm not going to stand here and just deal with verse 29 and frighten all of you with the prospect of an unforgivable sin. Instead, I'm going to look at that verse in its context, and I'm going to encourage you to do so with me. Jump up to verse 22, because that's where the immediate context of that verse is found. Because in verse 22, you find the kickstart of this conversation, and you understand and you begin to see that Jesus is Teaching about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, it is a teaching that comes in response to an irrational accusation that had been launched at him. Notice in verse 22, it says, And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. So you get this picture of these scribes, these religious officials coming down from Jerusalem to confront Jesus, to charge Jesus with wrongdoing. His popularity and his power has reached the highest authorities in Jerusalem, so they dispatch a delegation to check things out. And so these scribes are there to size Jesus up and to hopefully stifle his expanding influence. And so that's what they try to do when they raise this charge in verse 22. Now, what's interesting about this passage is that this story is found in the Gospel of Matthew as well. The difference is Mark tends to write with a more precise and a concise manner. He focuses on, he he gives us really quick versions of of these events. But Matthew, he provides a little more detail. He gives us longer stories. And so when you find this moment in Matthew's Gospel, found in Matthew chapter 12, It happens, this conversation comes on the hills of Jesus casting a demon out from a man who was blind and mute. A man who was described as being demon oppressed. And Jesus looked upon him, had compassion for him, and he did something about it. He lovingly liberated him from his oppression. And the scribes and the Pharisees and other religious officials are standing there when it goes down. So they see with their own eyes this display of power. So not only are they witnessing it firsthand, they've heard about all the things that Jesus is doing. And so they know that Jesus is a powerful person. No one can deny his ability to do the miraculous at this point in time. Which is why in verse 22, the scribes don't try to try to convince people otherwise. Instead of denying his power, which they could not do as they are standing there witnessing it firsthand, they seek to discredit its source. Well, I can't convince anyone that this demon-oppressed man is no longer demon-oppressed because everyone can see him dancing around. They can hear him talking. He's interacting with people in ways that he's never interacted with them before, so they can't deny Jesus' power. Instead, they seek to discredit the source of his power, and they do so in a scandalous way. They have the audacity of telling Jesus he's possessed by a demon. That his power is attributed not to the Holy Spirit, but to an unholy spirit. Not to God, but to Satan. And if you've been reading through the Gospel of Mark, you know Mark's already made it clear that Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit. That he's empowered by the Holy Spirit. This is what Mark chapter 1 verse 10 is all about when Jesus is being baptized and we see this picture of him coming up out of the water and we're told that the spirit descended upon Jesus like a dove. 
And the Holy Spirit then would empower Jesus throughout his public ministry. So all the things that he's doing in order to advance the kingdom of God in the world, he's doing under the power and the influence of the Holy Spirit. But these scribes are claiming otherwise. They're saying Jesus is not operating under the power of the Spirit. He's operating under the power of the prince of demons. It's an utterly irrational accusation. It's one that if you think well about it tonight, it's one that will remind you and I that objective proofs do not automatically produce saving faith. Objective proofs do not automatically produce saving faith. I've talked to many people over the years who've claimed that they would believe in Jesus if they could just see a miracle. If God would prove himself by doing a particular thing that they think he should do and they draw the conclusion that if God would just do that and they could see with their own eyes the power of God displayed, then they would believe. Or they would say if God would just show up, if he would show himself visibly, then they would believe. I've had conversations with others that says, well, we kind of live in a tougher age. If we were alive in the first century and we were navigating the first century world, hanging in Galilee, catching wind of Jesus, and if we were able to go and see Jesus perform miracles, then we would believe. We would undoubtedly trust this guy who's performing all these miracles. But the scribes' accusation in this moment tell us that objective proofs do not automatically produce saving faith. And the reason why that is is because of the effects sin has on the human heart. You see, one of the ways sin is described in the New Testament, the effects that sin has, is that it has this tendency to darken our understanding. That sin hinders us from being able to see things rationally all the time. And when sin begins to darken our understanding, it really doesn't matter how much proof is presented to us, that proof is not necessarily going to produce saving faith. Many times, sin in darkening our understanding results in irrational responses to Jesus. The scribes are responding irrationally in this moment. They're not thinking clearly. Sin has darkened their understanding. And you see this elsewhere in the scriptures. If you come to the end of the gospel, particularly the end of Matthew's gospel, There's a moment when the resurrected Jesus appears to a crowd of disciples. And what's interesting about that moment is that the proof of the resurrection is right there in front of everybody. People are seeing the bodily, the body of Jesus right there. And it says many many people fell down and they worshiped Jesus. But then there's this line in Matthew 28 that says that some doubted. How do you doubt the resurrection when you're looking directly at the resurrected Jesus? Surely that would dispel unbelief, that would dispel doubt, but there's something about objective proofs that do not automatically produce saving faith. There were those who knew about the resurrection in the first century. They they knew the proofs, and yet they still tried to cover it up. There are those who caught wind of the resurrected Christ, and yet instead of coming to it and responding to it positively, they tried to cover it up. Despite the proof of a guarded tomb that was suddenly found empty, people tried to cover it up because objective proofs do not automatically produce saving faith. So then the question is, where does saving faith come from? Well, saving faith comes only 
through the Holy Spirit who empowers our ability to overcome darkness, the darkness of disbelief. And sometimes he'll use proofs. Sometimes we can talk rationally about the evidence of the life, death, and resurrection. Sometimes the Holy Spirit may use that to trigger something in someone's life. But there are many times where he might not. I'm reminded of Thomas's example. He was one of the disciples who had a hard time believing in the resurrected Jesus, that the proof of God's activity in Jesus. And although all of his friends was telling him that Jesus is alive, Jesus is alive, he says, I'm not going to believe it unless I see it with my own two eyes. And I'm able to put my hand in his wounds and see his scars. I need to see it in order to believe it. And in that instance, Jesus conceded. Jesus responded graciously to Thomas's request. And so he showed up and he gave Thomas proof of his resurrection by appearing to him in that moment. But what's interesting about the exchange is what Jesus tells him afterwards. He looks at him and he says, have you believed because you have seen me? And he asks that question, but then he counters it with this. He says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Blessed are those who are not stubbornly insisting upon God to prove himself. Blessed are those who believe the gospel because the Holy Spirit has inserted it into their life in such a way that their eyes have opened to it. You see, if, if objective proofs is all that is needed for salvation, then salvation would not come by grace. If objective proofs is all that is needed, salvation would not come by grace. It would only come to those who are smart enough to weigh all the evidence and put the pieces together in a convincing fashion. It would only come to those who are cut in the ilk of Sherlock Holmes. And that would leave me out because I'm not a detective. That's not how I think. That's not how I'm wired. That's not my orientation. But if objective proofs is all that is needed, salvation would no longer come by grace, but what we're finding in how the scribes are responding in this moment is an indication of grace in salvation. Because we're seeing that saving faith is the result of, from, saving faith results from subjective experience of objective truth. In other words, saving faith happens when the Holy Spirit takes the truth of the gospel and he inserts it into our lives. Because as disciples of Jesus, understand that we don't simply believe the facts of the resurrection. We don't just pick up a book of, on apologetics and read through it and suddenly that's why we believe. That's not necessarily how it goes down. There are many people who believe in the facts of the resurrection. But what makes a disciple a disciple, what constitutes saving faith, isn't simply the facts of the gospel. It's the effects of the gospel. It's when the Holy Spirit takes that which is objectively true and he plants it into the subjective experience of a human soul. And in that moment, subjective experience of objective truth, the Holy Spirit then lifts the shade of darkness that has been covering their hearts so we might see Jesus and respond with repentance and faith. This is how it happens. This is how People come to saving faith all throughout the scriptures. And so we find this dynamic, the Holy Spirit lifting the shade from our hearts so that we might see the saving significance of Jesus. We might repent and believe in him. But the scribes aren't quite there. The scribes aren't 
quite there. They're giving this irrational accusation, launching it towards Jesus, and then Jesus exposes how irrational their thought process is by speaking in parables. And he gives a couple of illustrative analogies, starting in verse 23. This is what he says. He says, And he called them to him and said to them in parables, or illustrative analogies. He says, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. He's saying, if I'm in cahoots with Satan, I'm really giving myself to a stupid process. If I'm in cahoots with Satan, then we're defeating ourselves if I'm, if I'm dispelling his influence in other people's lives. If I'm casting out demons, I'm on a suicide mission. So he's making very clear. He says, not only am I not in cahoots with Satan, I am not the embodiment of Satan, which is what the scribes, uh, what their accusation really leads to. They're saying you must be the manifestation of Satan. And that's an absurd accusation. It's not like Star Wars, right? It's not like Darth Sidious is pretending to be Palpatine in this moment. It's not, Jesus isn't floating that way. And so he's making this clear with these parables, how irrational their accusation is. And he's saying, look, you know as well as I do that strength is found in unity, not division. And a kingdom will not be strong if it's divided amongst itself. A house cannot be strong if it's divided amongst itself. Strength comes from unity. And then he goes on in verse 27 to affirm the strength of Satan. He refers, he refers to Satan as a strong man. So he's not divided against himself. He leads a united front in opposition against the kingdom of God and all that Jesus has come to accomplish. So he says, yes, Satan is strong. This is what he's getting after in verse 27. So obviously he's not divided amongst himself. Verse 27, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. And in response to the scribes, Jesus provides an astonishing revelation. It's an astonishing revelation in this moment. He's saying, yes, Satan is strong, but do you hear what else he says? He's saying, Satan is strong, but I am stronger. He's saying, Satan is strong, but I am stronger. I am here on behalf of the kingdom of God. And I'm going to establish it in this world, and it's going to roll back the kingdom of darkness. And in this moment, Jesus is putting himself in the middle of a drama that's been unfolding throughout human history since the beginning of time. When the serpent, when Satan first showed up in Eden and paradise was lost because he deceived Adam and Eve into sinning against God and rupturing the world. He, a conflict was, in a sense, kick-started in that moment. And what's interesting about that moment is as, as, as God begins to divvy out the consequences for sin and disobedience. He lists out several chief among them being alienation from God and being eventual death and separation from God. He's, living, he's divvying out a variety of consequences for sin. But then there's this little moment, a little expression, a little hint, a little hope that's found in chapter 3, verse 15. And in the beginning of the Bible, we're affirmed, yes, there will always be a conflict between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. But no, this is not a conflict between two equals. These are not equal powers, equal weights fighting it out. This is a 
conflict between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. And we know that one day the kingdom of God is going to win out. Because in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we're told about a, a, a man who would be born, a, someone who would come from the seed of the woman, and that one day he would crush the head of the serpent. One day a stronger man will come and he will crush Satan. He will crush the serpent. And it's hinted at in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, and then it is promised and echoed over and over and over again all throughout the Old Testament until Jesus steps up in this moment and he identifies himself as that man, saying, I've come to plunder his home. I've come to dispel darkness. I've come to, to rupture the enemy's influence in the world. And one of my favorite passages about this is found in Isaiah chapter 49. You read it earlier, and it might have sounded strange at the time, but Isaiah chapter 49, you get this moment where the prophet Isaiah is anticipating a moment when the Lord will come and he will set captives free and he will overcome the strong man. He will defeat the tyrant who is tyrannizing people all over the planet. And this is what goes down in verse 49. I'm chapter 49 of 24. It says, can the prey be taken by the mighty or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? Is that even possible? And then the Lord intervenes and says, yes, it's possible because I'm involved. Yes, it's possible because I'm going to do it. And this is what he says. He says, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken and the prey of the tyrant be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you and I will save your children and I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh. And here's where it gets real gory. Uh, and they, will, they, will, they shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine. But then here's the point. Then all flesh, all peoples shall know that I am the Lord your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. And so when Jesus affirms, yes, Satan is strong, but I am stronger, he's inserting himself into this moment, identifying himself as the one who is anticipated in the Old Testament. He is, he is the holy one who would come to conquer the unholy one. Jesus is the divine warrior who will end Satan's influence in the world. This is why 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, we're told that the Son of God appeared to destroy the works of the devil to roll back his influence in people's lives, to dispel it and to eternally deal with it. So you think about that for a moment. Jesus is the divine warrior who will end Satan's influence in the world. And you're wondering, well, where does Satan have influence? Where is his influence in the world? Where is his influence in our lives? And, and I would encourage you to think along these lines. You know, Satan rules wherever sin reigns. Satan rules wherever sin reigns. Reigns, And we know this because right after Jesus says that in verse 27, he moves into verse 28 and he gets everybody's attention by using that little word truly, which is one of those words in the gospel when you hear Jesus say truly or truly, truly, he's saying sit up, pay attention to what I'm about to say. And so he talks about, yes, Satan is strong, but I'm stronger. I'm this divine warrior who've come to end Satan's influence. And then he moves into verse 28 and he starts talking about the forgiveness of sins. He says in verse 28, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children, of man, the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter, saying all sins will be forgiven. So he goes from talking about plundering the enemy's house to extending forgiveness to sinners. And the reason why 27 and 28 follow on the heels of one another in this moment is because Satan rules where sin reigns. 
And what that means is Jesus can't deal with Satan without simultaneously dealing with sin. He can't deal with Satan without simultaneously dealing with sin. Satan rules where sin reigns. And so you hold that and you think about, well, what does Jesus do? How does he plunder the enemy's house? How does he extend forgiveness? And then you come to the end of the gospel and you find an ironic moment. An ironic moment where Jesus is bound. An ironic moment where Jesus is taken to a place that was not at first glance, a place of victory, but a place of defeat. And Jesus was nailed to the cross, dying so that our sins might be forgiven. And you begin to think with me tonight about, okay, what's the relationship between the cross, between the binding of Jesus on the cross, his death there? What is the relationship between defeating Satan and forgiving sins? Why is it there? Well, think about the enemy's works. What what does the enemy do? The enemy does a bunch of things, but here are two fundamental core things that he does. On one hand, the enemy lies about the character of God. He tells people that God isn't trustworthy. He tells people that God is not just. He tells people that God is not right. He... He lies about the character of God. The very word Satan means, in some ways, deceiver. So he lies about the character of God. But then there's another thing that he does to tyrannize people. He accuses us. He's a liar and an accuser. And the problem with that is, the problem with that is that perhaps the only time Satan ever tells me the truth is when he's accusing me. When he tells me I'm selfish, he's usually right. When he tells me I'm proud, he's usually right. When he tells me what I've done wrong, he's usually right. He's accusing me in that moment. And so the question then becomes, how can God be true to his character and and extend forgiveness to sinners like me? Well, he does that through the cross, right? Because on the cross, God shows himself to be both just and the justifier of those of us who have sinned against him. That on the cross, God defeats Satan by revealing the truth of his character. God is good. God is loving. God is just. God is righteous. God is faithful. God keeps his promises. God is sovereign. God is in control. The cross projects that reality about who God is. But then at the same time, the cross projects forgiveness for the accused. Because when Jesus died on the cross, he did not die because I was innocent. He died on the cross because I was guilty. He died on the cross because Satan's accusation against me were true. I am a selfish person. I am a proud person. I have so much sin in my life, it's ridiculous. And so when the enemy accuses me, usually he's telling me the truth. But it's in that moment where I turn my attention to the cross and I see God's character fully displayed and I see forgiveness fully offered. Because not only is Jesus the divine warrior who will end Satan's influence in the world, he does so by going to the cross and showing himself as the divine savior who will extend forgiveness to all who repent and believe the gospel. This is the revelation of this moment, the revelation of this passage. Jesus, divine warrior, Jesus, divine savior, saying all your sins will be forgiven. 
And that's a powerful phrase in verse 28 because when you take it together, the English really loses the impact of that phrase. He's not just talking about each individual sins each time you confess. He's not saying there are sins in your life that have not yet been forgiven if you are in Christ. And in order for those to be forgiven, you have to confess them fully for God to accept you or to let you continue on in his kingdom. He's talking about all sins will be forgiven. And the language in the original, in the original of the New Testament, it gives this idea of, of God taking all of our sins lumped together as a whole. And he all sins lumped together as a whole all at one time and forgiving them. All of our sins, past, present, and future, the sins that I'm guilty of that I haven't even committed, there's a way for those sins to, to be forgiven. This is why, well, just consider this way. Let's suppose each one of you live to, to, live to be 75 years old. Let's say each one of you live to be 75 years old. That's 27,375 days of walking this planet. Now just think for a moment. Estimate how much you will sin during that time span. There's a lot of opportunity for things to go wrong. There's a lot of opportunity for pride to creep in. There's a lot of opportunity for selfishness to show itself. There's a lot of opportunity for lust to be exercised. There's a lot of opportunity for sin to sin over 27,375 days. But let's give a conservative estimate. Let's say you sin two times a day over the course of that time frame. Just two. You just have two unflattering thoughts about someone, right? Just two. You take just two times a day and you compound that, put it all together. That means you will have committed 54,754 sins on the conservative side. We are some unclean people in that regard, right? 54,000 sins, and that's just for one person. In this moment, Jesus is saying the forgiveness he offers is, is to take all of our sin lumped together as a whole, and he forgives them all at one time. And what's fascinating about it is that this is true not of just one person. It's true of every person in his kingdom. So you can compound the number. You can link arms with other sinners who have their sins forgiven because of the gospel and just think about the number, the massive ball of sins that that would create. And Jesus says all of them are accounted for through my death on the cross. My, G, my death is sufficient for all of your sins. Jesus forgives them all at once. This means that the sin you commit tomorrow, if you are in Christ, that sin is forgiven. You will not be condemned for it. Jesus was condemned for it. This is why when the enemy steps onto the doorway of your life and he begins to accuse you, you do not have to shrink back in fear. You do not have to proudly defend yourself, so no, that's true. You can humbly acknowledge, yeah, that, that, that is true. You can hear his accusation, but the moment you hear his accusation, you deflect it to the cross. This is why we sing the types of songs that we sing. We, we can sing songs like where we're really boasting in a sense, let the accuser roar of the sins that I have done. I know them all and more. My father, he knoweth none. He has separated them as far as the east is from the west. My sins have been forgiven. Christ bore them all for me. He, for my sake, was broken, and he died to set me free. He's liberated us from the enemy's damning influence. He's liberated us from the condemnation our sins deserved because Christ was condemned on the cross. 
Therefore, Jesus can say to everyone in this room who's repented and believed the gospel, all of your sins are forgiven, all of them simultaneously at the same time, past, present, and future. None of them will come back to bite you. They're all accounted for. The cross covers them. This is fascinating forgiveness that we have been given in Jesus. Which is why I think it's funny when guys like me just want to focus on verse 29. You never want to step into verse 29 unless you're running into verse 29 in light of the reality of verse 28. Jesus affirms this incredible forgiveness to those who are in Christ before he gives this solemn warning. And it is a solemn warning. It is one that is serious. But it is not one that should disturb us and paralyze us or make us think well have I slipped up and done something that God will not forgive if you're asking that question chances are you have not done that if verse 29 keeps you up at night that's probably a sure indication that you have not committed the unpardonable sin you see I'm not so much concerned about those who struggle with sins I'm more concerned about those who do not I'm more concerned about those who cozy up with that which rendered the death of Jesus necessary on the cross. That's what bothers me. And so you think about verse 29, this solemn warning. He, he refers to this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And he says, anyone who does that never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they had said he has an unclean spirit. Again, referencing back to what the scribes had charged Jesus of. So the question is, what? What's going on here? Why does Jesus refer to the Holy Spirit in this moment? And the way to understand this is to think about the role the Holy Spirit plays in our lives. The Holy Spirit has a particular ministry in the world. He is a testifying or a witnessing spirit. The Holy Spirit is a floodlight that casts people's attention to Jesus. He, he's come to show us the saving significance of Christ. This is the Holy Spirit's ministry. He wants people to see who Jesus is and to see what Jesus has done. And so what I think is going on here, this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, it happens when we reject his message of Jesus. When he's trying to call our attention to Jesus and we reject that. And this isn't something that happens on a whim. It isn't something that happens necessarily because you had a bad day or because you said something one day that you didn't really believe in your heart of hearts. This, the whole language of this passage speaks to this resolute, defiant rejection of what is obviously true right there in this moment. And right there in that moment is obviously true that Jesus has come to defeat the enemy. He's stronger than Satan. That is obviously true. But the scribes are responding irrationally. It's as though they have four apples in front of them, but they're insisting they're looking at 12 bananas. It's that type of irrationality. It's that type of stubborn refusal to receive that which is obviously true. This is why Sam Storms, I find his words very helpful about this text when he goes on to say, this was not a one-time momentary slip or inadvertent mistake in judgment. This is a persistent, lifelong rebellion in the face of inescapable truth. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not a careless act, but a calloused attitude. It is not just unbelief, but unashamed unbelief that arises not from ignorance of what is true, but in defiance of what one knows beyond doubt to be true. 
It is not mere denial, but determined denial. Not mere rejection, but willful, wide-eyed rejection. This is what's going on here. And it takes place, I think, in subtle ways over the course of time, the more a person resists the Holy Spirit's testimony to Jesus. It is turning a blind eye while he's trying to pull the shade up on our darkened understanding. We grab the shade and we force it back down, refusing to see what he wants us to see about Jesus. And when we refuse to see what he wants us to see about Jesus, by resisting the Holy Spirit, we are unable to overcome the enemy's influence because only Jesus is strong enough to do something about it. And if we resist the Holy Spirit, we are unable to receive forgiveness because Jesus is the only one who can forgive sins. The Holy Spirit's role is to show us the saving significance of Jesus. And salvation cannot be found in any other person, any other place, any other thing in the universe. So when we resist the Holy Spirit's passion, we are cutting ourselves off from the only way to escape the tyranny of the enemy and the only way to have our sins forgiven, past, present, and future, forever and always. Because the Holy Spirit shows us the saving significance of Jesus, then he intends to shepherd our hearts towards trusting in the saving significance of Jesus. So that we're not simply looking at Jesus and affirming the facts. Yeah, Jesus lived. He said some pretty nice things. But we're actually casting our lives upon Jesus, trusting in Jesus, wanting the effects of Jesus to take root in our lives. And this is what the Holy Spirit intends to shepherd us towards as we come to know Christ. So let me ask you in this moment, if you are someone, you're here in this space today and you have not trusted in the gospel, you, you are not currently believing the gospel, let me encourage you not to, if the Holy Spirit is lifting the shades in your life, don't Resist him by trying to pull it back down. Instead, receive his ministry. Let him show you the saving significance of Jesus. Turn from trusting in yourself and put your faith in Christ who lived, who died, and who rose again. Let the facts of the gospel affect you deeply by receiving it and believing it and finding liberty from the enemy and the forgiveness of your sins. Don't resist his ministry Receive it. Let the Spirit do what He wants to do in your life. Now, that doesn't mean that when the shades come up, all of a sudden all of your questions are answered and you have a full-orbed understanding of all that Jesus did and His saving significance. It doesn't mean that. But it does mean that you're seeing the significance of Christ and you're saying, He's who I'm linking up with in this world. I'm going to go the way of Jesus. And as I go the way of Jesus, I'm going to learn more and more and more about what it means to live free from the tyranny of the enemy and to enjoy the full forgiveness of our sins, past, present, and future. Let me ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. I'm going to voice a prayer for us. And my desire over this time is that the Holy Spirit would encourage all of us in this moment 
to look towards the saving significance of Jesus and to feast on his life and his death and his resurrection, to, for our souls to be gripped by a reverent rejoicing in all that Jesus lived for, died for, and rose again for. And so I'm gonna pray in that direction, and then when I'm done, we're gonna open up the table and we're gonna continue worshiping God in light of Jesus by remembering his body given for us by taking of the bread, and we're gonna dip it into the cup and we're gonna reflect upon the blood of Jesus that was shed for the full forgiveness of our sins. And we're gonna feast on Christ and we're gonna celebrate Christ. We're gonna engage in a time of reverent rejoicing together. But if you're someone who's not yet trusted in the gospel, let me encourage you not to come to the table at this time, but instead take a moment. We have a couple of prayers that are listed in your worship guide or on the back of that handout that you received. And and they provide some language and some words that the Holy Spirit might use to help you as you think and process your response to Jesus. And if over the course of this time you feel the shades being lifted and you want to trust in the saving significance of Jesus, then we'd love to have some conversations with you. We'd love to encourage you in that and bless you in that. And, and then next time around, you can come to the table and celebrate Jesus the way so many people are celebrating him over these next few moments. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to respond by coming to the table, by singing songs, by praying, by doing all the things that the Spirit may want us to do to show us Jesus and to shepherd our hearts towards Jesus. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would bless these few moments, that your Spirit would be at work within us, take us deeper in our recognition and our trust in the saving significance of Jesus. God, I ask and I pray all of these things in his name now. Amen.